This is the PR Pod, the podcast that brings you expert tips for working in PR and finding your niche. With your host, Brooke Burns. Welcome to the PR Pod, the essential podcast for emerging public relations professionals. Many of us in public relations are curious by nature. We like to dig around and find out information in the hope it can inform, educate or inspire us. And it's curiosity that led me to create the PR Pathway series within this podcast. I wanted to find out how established PR professionals have gotten to where they are now. What challenges have they faced? What have they learned from those experiences? What successes have come their way? And what would they do differently knowing what they know now? All in the hope it offers you some inspiration, guidance, comfort, or even confidence to move your own PR career forward. For this episode, I'm joined by Karen Eck. Karen's career has taken her from Australia to the United States and then back to Australia again. A lot of her work has been done in television and entertainment, but with her company, X Factor, she's also helped shape brands in travel, tech, consumer, lifestyle, and business. Karen, welcome to the PR Pod. Oh, thank you for having me. What a lovely intro. (laughs) So one of the things I'm always really interested in is how people got into PR or how they even heard about it. I know you studied PR at university, but how did it even get on your radar to know that was something that you might want to study? You know, I never even thought about it until I was in year 12 and, you know, I went to a school where a lot of my friends, you know, we were all going to go and study at uni but no one really necessarily knew what they wanted to study and I remember thinking exactly that and it was my mum who actually suggested that I have a chat with sort of a very close family friend uh, and she'd known this gentleman who was a professor of economics actually for you know, since she was 18. And she really trusted his judgment. And my father at the time was traveling a lot. He was a diplomat and he was overseas and he just actually wasn't around at this crucial time. And I think she did something pretty sensible, which is that she kind of tried to get me in front of um, a couple of mentor figures and to get me thinking about, um, you know, ideas that maybe she didn't feel she was in the best position to sort of advise on. And uh, so I, I, you know, sat down with this gentleman and he said, well, have you thought about doing communications? And I thought, well, I've heard of it, but, you know, why would you think it would suit me? And he really just sort of said, this is what I know about you and I, this is what I know about what I think would suit you. Have a look. And I did have a look at it and I thought, look, the, the PR sort of degree and component of it sounds like it's something I could like. And I really, um, my, I think my biggest decision at the time was that I was really, really interested in music, to be honest. I wanted to do composition and I, music was my actual love. And I just don't think I was particularly brilliant enough to really make a career out of it. And I felt that, look, I could always do music as a bit of a hobby, you know. So I was one of these people that did piano lessons as a little kid. And, and uh, but I decided, look, if I do communications, I can always do music, you know, um, like as a hobby or something like that. So that's how I started down the track. And, um, you know, it suited me. And I felt like, look, I'm not quite sure where this is going to go. Um, I actually expected just to finish uni and then probably go traveling. Um, I really didn't have any other expectations whatsoever. Um, but it was really the internships at, during uni that um, informed me more about sort of what public relations was about. And, you know, it was one of the things I did a lot of. I did like three or four internships mm. um, and I felt that that was probably one of the best things I could have done because I really learnt uh, what I didn't want to do. I did yeah. some horrid internships actually. And I just thought, wow, I 
don't want to do that job or, you know, that's just something I'm absolutely not interested in. And it was the internship um, that I got in my final year at uni that led me to actually get a job at the ABC. Um, and a friend was actually my uh, university lecturer who said on the, I think almost literally the last day uh, possible um, of one of these, ter- of, of a term, uh, she said, you know, a friend of mine runs program sales uh, at the ABC in Sydney and an an internship has opened up, is anyone here interested? And and I went to Canberra Uni. So this was, you know, this was something that would start on the Monday and no one put their hand up. And I just thought, why why would you not want to do this? This is the ABC. I don't even know what program sales even really does besides the obvious. And I put my hand up and, you know, so many days later, I was, you know, driving down with my mum to uh, to Sydney to do this internship, and that was brilliant because I found that I found being there exciting. I found program sales exceedingly dull, and <laughs> I was in amongst all of these files and lots of lots of paper. You know, I remember thinking, yeah. lots of files, lots of paper, and none of this looks interesting. And it was a lady by the name of Kate Reed who had already been working at the ABC for, gosh, decades, very, very well-known and respected. And she stopped me in the corridor and she said, you know, who are you? What are you doing? How long are you here? And she said, what are you doing in program sales? You're not in the right department. And she took me by the hand walked me down the hallway into the head of publicity and said, this is television publicity, and said, you know, this is, this is Karen. Uh, she's doing a degree in PR. She needs to be doing in her internship here. Um, I'll leave you with it. And she just turned around and I didn't see her again. And the boss just turned around and said, you know, he's a Canadian. He goes, hello. Um, and I stayed. And, you know, I then realized, okay, well, this was a whole other area of PR um, I hadn't ever even thought about. I didn't even know what a publicist did. I just watched and learned. And, uh, you know, that was the beginning of my career, really, um, working at the ABC. So you spent about, um, if I remember correctly, uh, what, six, eight years in television publicity when you include Channel 9 in there as well? Is that right? Yeah. Exactly. So five years at the ABC um, and then I was headhunted by Channel 9 uh, to work there. Um, And that was brilliant because that was a a sensational sort of transition, you know, working for the national broadcaster uh, where people pretended that ratings didn't matter (laughs) to Channel 9 where ratings absolutely mattered, you know, and it was just a different culture completely. But I loved loved both places. I, I loved them for the diversity of work that I was able to do. Um, you know, when I worked at the ABC, one of the genres I worked with was documentary. And I loved that because I just felt that it was, you know, such a privilege to work with, you know, people who were creating an interesting program for a particular reason. Uh, So it might be that the subject matter was interesting, or they'd done something extraordinary, uh, or perhaps, um, you know, the, the director themselves had an interesting backstory. And I just felt utterly privileged every time I was promoting a doco. Uh, you know, most of the time, 99%, they were brilliant. Every now and again, you got a, you know, so-called dog and you had to flog that and hustle that. But, um, you know, I, I love that sort of genre. Um, and that was something that was very different to the sort of programming that I worked um, with at Channel, at Channel 9. 
So for, I mean, most of the people listening, I, I imagine if you listen to a couple of episodes will probably um, know that I worked in television publicity as well for about a decade. But for those who don't know anything about becoming a publicist or being a publicist in television, can you give a quick overview of what the role of a television publicist is? Well, I think just listen to the podcast with Joanne Papadopoulos. <laughs> this that is was true. fantastic. Yeah, you know, it was app. a great, it was a great podcast. Well done. Um, it was. I really do actually recommend listening to that. I wish that was around when I started my career. Goodness. Um, look, you know, fundamentally, you are, you know, raising the profile of a person or a program. You know, with the end view of having more people watch a program. And, um, you know, so whether or not it is just tuning in, you know, well, it is fundamentally tuning in, but you, you know, um, you know, networks uh, want you to stay on the channel for the whole day. Um, so sometimes, you know, primetime programming, you know, is really the entire focus, like early in the morning, you know, research um, has shown that if a, if a household has a TV on for breakfast, you know, television, they're likely to have that television on the same dial the entire day right through. So, you know, it, you know, your priorities was always around sort of the primetime programming. Um, but as a junior publicist, you were often given the less important programs uh, because that sort of made sense to a, to a degree. You could cut your teeth. I remember at the ABC, it always started with um, you got children's and gardening. Um, <laughs> and then that moved to to movies um, and then sort of you worked up, you worked your way up from there. That is not to say that children's programming is not important. It, it is absolutely important. And gardening these days, certainly during COVID times, is utterly important for a lot of people. Um, but, uh, you know, the network priorities would really dictate sort of the shows that you would have to spend a lot of time on. Um, but, you know, as part of the role, I actually think it's one of the best jobs in the industry because you get to do so much. And when I started my career um, as a publicist, we kind of did everything. So you would arrange events as well as doing a publicity campaign. So if you had a, a launch of a show, you would arrange the entire launch itself, like as in where it would where it would happen, who would come, who would be invited. You'd also do all of the the media that needed to follow um, follow it or be in and around it as part of a campaign. And I've since learned that, that some people divide those two roles. And I think, wow, that sounds logical, actually, um, because we would be just run off our feet. I would genuinely say that since the day I worked as a television publicist till the sort of the, my last day of working as a television publicist, I think I just, you just work really, really hard. Um, and I don't think that you know, I think it teaches you a lot of great skills. I think it teaches you great resilience in a job and you have to be creative and, and all of those things. Um, but I, I, I loved it for all of the complexity and the diversity that it gave me in the role. What did you least like about working in television publicity? Oh, look, probably, um, I mean, it was very, very long hours. I, I think it was the constant being on uh, but I would say that that is usually the case when you're working full on in any campaign. I wouldn't necessarily say it was just television publicity at all. I'd say that it's probably when you're working in a campaign where you're actually pitching media, um, that can be exhilarating and it can be very, it can be exhausting for some people and it can be, uh, it can be deflating. Because, you know, yeah. when you're not getting the runs on the board, you know, that's, that's tiring. You know, it's much easier to do a campaign when you've got a star and everyone wants them and everyone wants your show. That's easy. That comes down to scheduling. 
and maybe a bit of crisis management if you've got a difficult talent or a talent that might end up on the front pages for some reason where you don't want them on the front pages Mm. um, or the network doesn't want them on the front pages. But if you've got a program and it is unknown with unknown talent and it is not a genre or um, a program that people are going, that it's not a program that they love yet, you've got to work really hard. You've got to work yeah. 10 times harder. And it's like pushing a wheelbarrow full of wet cement uphill. You know, sometimes it is just a slog. So if you do not have that resilience and that determination and that ability to keep going, it can do it can do people in. They don't survive it. Um, it's often actually one of the reasons why journalists don't make great publicists. Uh, there are many, many, many journos that try and move to the dark side and in inverted commas, they don't do a good job. They're not great, and it's part of the reason is they go, oh, can't be stuffed, you know, and they just. You know, you've got to be that kind of person who wants to turn the no into a yes and be skilled at turning a no into a yes as well. Yeah. And it's also, um, you know, you've touched on this already, but thinking on your feet and having the pressure of, of ratings, you know, each day ratings come in and I don't know what time they come in, eight or ten past eight or I don't know what they are now in the morning. And um, so you could have a meeting that morning, say, okay, ratings are really poor on this, whatever it is, reality show from last night what can we do today, i.e. in the next four hours to get something either up online or to get into the newspaper the next day? And then you have the meeting the next day. And they say the same thing to you. Okay, it's great. I know you've got that piece of newspaper coverage today. That's fantastic. But we're still not going well. Now what can you do? And you can get to the point where you feel like your ideas are so exhausted because you feel like you're just at the end of, you know, the tether when it comes to content Um and you really have to have that tenacity to really push through and try and think a little bit differently about how to tackle issues. And, it, and you know, that combined with, like you said, the, you know, the hours, you know, I know, you know, from my reality television days, you know, I could be taking, um, you know, the host of a reality show or a contestant to breakfast radio and I could be there at 5.45 and they could be doing chats all day with people, print, magazine, radio, and then you're taking them to a chat show in the evening and then you get up and you do it again the next day. So it's um, your hours plus that kind of relentless, you know, what can we get? When can we get it? That's not working. What else can we do? Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. You know, it's also this sense of responsibility. Um, it's probably one of the reasons why I never really naturally um, loved or w- worked uh, on sort of theatre PR because I felt I felt that it, I felt so, it was so, you know, it was such a responsibility to fill every seat. And I think, you know, television is similar, but you're a little distance from that. You're not seeing people sitting in seats. And I know that there is just such a great privilege and responsibility that comes with that, you know, that you just, um, it's kind of, it's a plus and it's also a minus. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've sometimes felt so responsible, you know, I guess that's why I, I have always liked to do a great job is because I, I actually care. I really want a great outcome. I want to have my clients or a program featured in the best possible way and I actually genuinely care. Um, and, you know, I, I look back on all of those times when you just have to go the extra mile, you know, and if you don't have that in your personality, I think it's the sort of job that it just doesn't probably intrinsically suit you. At that time, so in that kind of network television publicity years, what did you feel you were really strong at and what were you not great as when it came to being a, a publicist? 
I think um, when, well, when I started, actually, um, I did something that felt fairly logical to me. And, um, I, you know, one of the very first uh, projects I actually had to do as a junior uh, was given to me because of almost, um, you know, not a mistake, but a sort of a, a requirement. It was actually, I'd say it was given to me out of desperation. Uh, but the ABC had uh, a talent by the name of Andrew Denton. And uh, he didn't want to work with the publicity department. And he was going through a stage when, no, that wasn't his style and he didn't want to do that. But there was a really important program coming up called The Party Machine. And uh, it was a satire. And, and you know, the, the boss just said to, you know, to me, just literally threw a, put a folder on my desk and said, look, this guy um, is pretty young. You know, he, he, you know, he doesn't want to work with any of us. Um, so he doesn't know you. So will you do the publicity on this on this program? Because look, honestly, anything you do is going to be a plus. What a gift! Because you know I could have done anything, and it was like, okay, well, that's great. Um, there was no pressure, which I loved. So I did really enjoy, and I've always worked. Uh, you know, I, I love I love doing things that are a little bit unexpected. Um, and the thing I did, which has always been a strength of mine, is that I. I did what felt logical to me, which is I actually, I didn't know them and I didn't know the department. I didn't even know where they were located on Gore Hill. So I walked out the front door of the publicity department and walked to their department and walked in and said, hey, hi, um, this is who I am and, and I'd love to have a chat with the EP. Uh, every single person in that entire department stopped. And, you know, it is the comedy department, so they wanted to make a thing of it and got up and like <laughs> applauded and said, oh, my goodness, in the time of like X number of years, no one's no one from the department had ever been in to their office. And that was an incredible wake up call to me because I thought, wow, well, that doesn't even seem logical. And here I am with no experience. And, you know, I just thought, well, OK, well, this is who I am. And, you know, what are we going to do? Um, and we had a dialogue and I think, you know, that's what they wanted actually. So my strength was in bringing people together to have conversations about possibilities. Um, and the other thing that I did, again, that kind of felt logical is I went over to their whiteboard and had a look and said, well, this looks interesting. Um, tell me about this. And we would, we did that every week. So I ended up being Andrew Denson's publicist for five years and until I left to go to the Nine Network. And I think it was because I, I just you know, I did what I call management by walking around and it enabled me to find out so much. You know, I would know what was going on. I would talk to people who, you know, it might be the person in the mailroom who's just heard something. But, you know, I, I was not going to achieve what I was going to achieve by sitting at my desk. Um, and I have to say, that is also one of the things I've adored about this, this job, even in generally in speaking in PR and publicity specifically, but generally speaking in PR, is I loved the strength it gave me to own my own day. I love, loved that then and I still love that now. So what that means is that, you know, when I arrived at my desk, you know, from the age of 23, I could, I owned my day. I, apart from the regular meeting that might happen in the office with my team or the boss, I did what I wanted to do. So when I wanted to go up to the comedy department to have a chat about, okay, let's come up with some great ideas of what we can do next week on location and what can I pitch to this publication, this publication and this radio station, um, you know, I, I really owned the day, which meant that I could be as productive or not. 
Um, you know, and it was my fault at the end of the day often. If my time management was bad, I generally speaking had to blame myself. Um, you know, and if I stayed back late, it was because I wanted to stay back late. Or if, you know, it was, it, it was usually because I was creating the deadlines that made me stick around to do more. And so that gave me a great, uh, a, you know, opportunity. I definitely think that my strength was to, to rise to, to that occasion, to, to manage by walking around, to connect with people, um, to be able to be creative and to sort of create situations where creativity would hopefully um, blossom. You know, sometimes it didn't, but uh, yeah, connecting with people definitely was a strength. Um, and when it came to, you know, what I didn't enjoy so much, I'd say that it was sometimes the administration behind some of the campaigns. Oh, I hate media lists, Brooke. I can't stand, I honestly, it's even to this day, one thing I really one thing I don't like is that endless sense of, of having to create the wheel. Now, I know that there's databases. Yes, I know that. I know that there's the list that you worked on that you, you, know, that you have from last year's campaign, but it's never up to date. It always has to be bespoke. And that sense of, here we go again. And honestly, even to this day, that's probably the thing I do not enjoy. I just feel like I could press a button and for all of that to be there. Um, which to a degree it is because you do have databases, but, you know, so much of it is remembering, you know, the best of the contacts that you have and for what purpose and how you would pitch them. And that, that's the art, that's the joy, um, but there's just also that admin side of it. Um, never liked uh, really the reporting side. I was not that person who loved to do the coverage report. And I have to say that when I set up my agency, one of the things that I did was that I really sort of set things up so that my publicists, my PR professionals were fundamentally working on campaigns and pitching and getting results and not spending days or hours chasing clippings, putting the report together. I would usually get an admin assistant in to do that job because I felt that that was such, uh, like I hated it. You know, um, and sometimes the expense reports, boring. You know, I, well, there's a reason why I'm not an accountant. Yeah, I hear you. You know, so sometimes that's okay when it's all working, but, you know, when it all gathers up and you think, oh, got to do that? No, if I'd have really loved accounting, I would have done accounting. I did accounting one. Yeah, and then, but yeah I, uh, I think accounting and uh, an economics, which I had to do an economics unit in my first um, year at university were the only two units that I got a 50 and like a 48% in, like just barely scraped through. So I thought, I don't need to know this stuff. Now, when you have your own business and you need exactly. to be across accounting, you need to understand what a credit and debit is and profit and loss, then it makes it, it's of more interest to me now. But back then, yeesh. Um, so your next position, if I remember correctly, was with Discovery Channel. So I was living when, so I was in Sydney and um, married at the time and my husband, who's a military officer, um, said to me one day, hey, you want to go and live in Washington, D.C.? Um, he'd been offered a posting and I loved my job at Channel 9. I've got it too. I really, really loved it so much um, with a great passion. And we were there at a fantastic time. Great team, you know, and I loved my job. But I did say at that moment, you know, you've got to live your life. You've got to have experiences. Yep, let's go. Um, so I also was fortunate that I had a reciprocal visa arrangement where I could work. Um, so I was incredibly fortunate because I connected with someone before I left who had moved over there and she was working for Discovery Channel. And I connected with her and said, look, when I do get there, could we catch up? Because, you know, it's always nice to have a, a local to say hi to. And she's Australian. 
and we connected when we did get, when I got there and she told me about an event she was working on called the Discovery Channel Eco Challenge which is a big expedition race which is held over 550 kilometers and teams of four adventurers go from you know A to B and you know the first team that gets it makes it across the finish line together wins and they're from all over the world and I just said to her oh and this particular event was happening in Morocco and it was like in six weeks and I just said to her oh my I would love I would wash dishes at an event like that I would wash your dishes seriously that sounds incredible and the next day she rang me and said, um, you know, what do you do again? I'm about to fire my publicist. Have you got any references and a CV? And like, you know, again, we tend to be organized. So I had that ready to fax. And she rang me up and said, well, have this meeting. If they like you, they might hire you. So it kind of went from there. And within six weeks, I was then in Marrakesh, Morocco, working on this amazing event. Um, and this event was created by Mark Burnett who then went on to create Survivor. So this was, in fact, the precursor to Survivor. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why he knew Survivor was going to work because it's about, it's about personality. So if you have uh, four personalities in a team, you've got to have the right personality mix for a team to travel 550 kilometres successfully, um, often sleep-deprived, you know, and doing all sorts of incredible disciplines from kayaking and horse riding and mountain biking and glacial climbing in the, in the, the you know, we, we did that in, uh, that was done in Argentina, for example, the following year. Um, so, you know, to be suddenly working in Marrakesh, Morocco on a television event but not doing the publicity for it I came to realize a number of years later how much I needed that kind of break. So my role was really managing international media on location. So I was, you know, all the international PR teams would bring, you know, would have their five, six, seven journalists from every country. And when they arrived on country, that was my job. My job was to manage them. And sort of almost one step, not so much above unit publicity, but you weren't so much in the detail of you know, uh, I mean, a unit publicist is typically really there getting all the shots that you might need to in writing the press kits and so forth. What I was doing was enabling all of these international media to get everything that they needed. So that meant getting them in a, heli a media helicopter, you know, dropping them off on top of a mountain, making sure that they had all the provisions to walk out in case the weather came through and they couldn't be picked up at the end of the day. Um, vehicles, but transporting media all around the course. Um, and the whole idea was that they were trying to chase their team and reporting on their team live, um, as, you know, as live as could be, uh, filing stories, you know, back in their home country um, and also banking a lot of publicity that would be for when Discovery was going to then air it. And because I understood television publicity, I understood so many components of what needed to be done. And that was, a, that was kind of why that worked. But what I loved was like I didn't, I had a break all in all while I was in the States for three years. I didn't, I was not on the front line pitching media. And it wasn't until I really got home that I reflected on that properly and I realized how much of a break I needed from that. And I just loved it. I just, I just needed to be doing my PR role and communications role from a different perspective. And that's kind of what I got. And that was the joy of it. How did that time make you a stronger or more effective publicist? Well, when you're dealing with, you know, I mean, in the case of Morocco, we had like 200 journalists, you know, on location following this, this event unfolding. Um, 
you know, I think I got to just appreciate just the, the deep complexity that has to, uh, you know, that's involved in a production of that size. Like, you know, you're talking so many camera crews, so many people, moving so many people. Um, I just say really that the focus there was on logistics. So I really honed my logistics skill because that's really what it was all about. It was getting from people from A to B. And I also learned, you know, how important it was to manage expectations. And there was one instance where, um, you know, and, and also to, I guess, enable people to have an element of decision making where it was at, at all possible, uh, because I think that was, again, part of the managing expectations. Uh, we had a situation where um, the, you know, the local army, it was called the gendarmerie, weren't we, they weren't flying our helicopters and it was a political situation. And um, so we had journalists who were on top of the Atlas Mountains. Um, this is actually, you know, you know, beautiful location just overlooking, you know, the most extraordinary landscape. Uh, but the helicopter to take, you know, we had 15 journalists at this point, this location. The helicopter that would take them off the mountain wasn't going to fly. And we did not know whether or not the helicopter would fly that day or that week. So I had vehicle backup and I had to then think through, you know, you're talking earlier about well, how do you manage this and, you know, people are not going to be very happy with me because this is not a great situation where they want to hang around. And a lot of the people that we're dealing with are pretty hardcore, you know, photojournalists. I mean, these are people who hang off mountains themselves. They can, they're pretty tough. They're incredible. They're robust. And, uh, you know, and I had to say to them, look, you know, you have two choices. The first choice is that you sit here and you wait it out. The helicopter may fly. The helicopter may not fly for a day or two. I don't know. Or you can get into one of these waiting vehicles and it will take you 10 hours to drive, guaranteed, to the next location where you can meet the team that you want to meet and get there in time. And it was because we needed to get them off the mountain and then circumnavigate part of that mountain. Um, so it wasn't like just as a crow flies. Um, and to walk off the mountain would probably take them two weeks at that point. So um, I just said, your choice. And I remember this guy looking at me and just saying, oh, my God, yeah, we hate you right now. And you're saying that <laughs> and you're smiling, you know. And I said, it's your choice. I said, you know. And what was interesting is that half stayed and half left. <laughs> and... It was approximately 12 hours and then we had a helicopter flying. But, you know, I couldn't control that situation, you know, and I think that really just sort of reinforced to me that sometimes we can't control what we want to control and all I can possibly do is present the best available choices. So your time um, doing the Eco Challenge, so you said you are in the States for about three years. So did you continue working on that? Did you do um, some additional work with Discovery Channel? So I was employed by Discovery Channel and the international ch team. Um, and so Eco Challenge, um, I did that for three years, whereby I did Morocco, Eco Challenge Morocco, Eco Challenge Argentina. And then uh, we did Eco Challenge um, Borneo the following year. But by that stage, the uh, programming rights had changed. So in fact, uh, Discovery Channel uh, relinquished the right, re sorry, relinquished the rights and USA Networks picked it up. So then I was working for them for some time and for Eco Challenges production company uh, that was owned by Mark Burnett. And then I worked for National Geographic Channel the year before I left, actually, where I was working on the team that was responsible for launching the National Geographic Channel into America, oddly enough, because the National Geographic magazine, of course, everyone would know it's that stemmed from the society, National Geographic Society. 
the first uh, channel, the international channel, if you like, for, just, for National Geographic was actually launched in Australia, of all places. Um, and then many, many years later, as they launched um, the channel around the world, they, you know, they came to, a, to to launch it in America, and that's, you know, it sort of felt weird. But you know, we were, you know, so many years later, actually launching uh, the channel into, you know, into the states, and that was a great experience because I felt like that was something that uh, was just really great to be a part of, and that was based right in the heart of Washington D.C. And I loved going to the office and, you know, really being in the in the heart of um, the city. Were you thinking at this point in time that you'd quite like to have your own business when when you did return to Australia, or how did that how did that I guess that little acorn of idea come about when you did eventually return? Yeah, it's interesting you say acorn because, it, to be honest, having a business was something that um, it was the seed that was planted in my mind when I first started um, at the ABC, and it was by my my much loved boss um, Sue Lester who actually came from a a promotions background and um, I just adored her and she was really very much like a mentor for me in in the role that she had and she was a wonderful mother and businesswoman and smart and creative and she said to me of all the people in this office um, she goes I can see you running your own business and I was you know young and I'd never thought of it never crossed my mind and I just went, really? Oh, okay, why do you say that? And she just, you know, said a few things. I went, okay, well, and I, I kind of just parked that idea. I, I didn't think about it for many years. And when I was in the States, I needed to set up a, um, because I was working, I was hired, for, I was working full time, but I was still hired uh, as a consultant, as in I, threw, I needed a, a, a company entity. Um, you know, basically to invoice, if you like. And uh, so I, that's how I set up the X Factor as a name because I then said, great, I can, you know, essentially Discovery Channel and then National Geographic were my first clients there. Um, and, you know, that's how it all came about. And, you know, when I came back to, to Australia, I continued just to keep working on projects. And I, I honestly think that even from that day, I've just never stopped working on projects. And, you know, that's how the agency started. Um, so it started... You know, with me working at home, just simple setup. I think I was like, you know, in the study at one point or, you know, half in the lounge room. And as you know, it's a bit like now, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, and I just set it up and I just kept working and I needed to get an office space and, um, you know, then I needed to hire someone and, and it kind of went from there. It's always been very, very organic and it's always, I've always let it evolve I haven't really gone in with an idea of saying, right, I want to have a, an agency that's got X number of people and this is exactly what it's going to be. I really fulfilled a need and a demand for what I felt like I wanted to do and, you know, and I got the best people I possibly could to help me. Was it hard attracting clients in those days? Because you'd obviously had a couple of years outside of Australia. What was it like trying to get work in when you, when you came back and set up your business? Yeah, you know, I was pretty fortunate because I, my first client here in Australia was actually Discovery Channel. And I then went on to represent 16, like 16 channel. It was a ridiculous number of channels because I kept launching them and launching them. And then when I, you know, it just built from there. And then I ended up working and representing a lot of Foxtel channels, actually, that were independent um, on the platform. And, you know, I loved that. And once you sort of create or you're known for that sort of expertise, then more opportunities would come our way. So we would launch new channels and kids' channels and 
uh, lifestyle programs or lifestyle channels rather. Um, and I also worked on the Astro Awards when Astro was not even known. And we built that up over six or seven years up until such time as it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, but that was brilliant because that brought us, really helped us to work very closely um, in the subscription TV industry as a whole. And, and I really loved that actually. Um, so I have I, I felt that the work my publicists and my PR professionals did really enabled us to get more and more clients. And, you know, it was all on um, referral. It was, you know, we didn't, didn't advertise or do anything like that. It was all based on word of mouth um, and doing, doing the best job you could every single day um, and knowing and appreciating that you're only ever as good as the last kind of gig, as they say. Mm. So how big was um, X Factor when it was at its largest point? Uh, we had around about eight staff, eight or nine staff max. Um, and, you know, one of the lessons I learned very early on was actually talking to a gentleman who had had a PR agency for some time. And he said to me, the lesson he learned was that he was as profitable with eight staff than 80. Mm. And, and I really took that away as being a very, very good lesson that I could learn from because I, it's very easy to get that sense of, oh, I, I look more successful if I have more people. And, you know, that is not, that is not the greatest model um, to base, you know, your, your sort of your financial structure around because I feel that you have, you have to be viable, number one. So I never hired people and then had to find the work. I had work and, and I found the best people. Mm. Um, and it meant that psychologically I was ahead of the game. I wasn't out there desperate to get to, to say yes to a gig because I needed it to pay a salary. Yeah. And once you have to do that, it shifts, the mindset shifts and you say yes to things you may not have said yes to. You go, okay, I'll do it because that's a really good salary. You're no longer thinking, is that the best publicist for the best for this gig? Is this person really suited? Um, you know, and I, 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 I just felt like I wanted to, to be in a stronger position than that. We had one situation that one of my publicists had a hard time with a talent who was renowned in the industry for being very, very difficult. So when this person was you know, sort of felt like they were reduced to tears, it was very unusual for this, you know, professional to be that shaken. Very, very unusual. This, is, this means this talent is nasty, honestly, like not, not appropriate. And I just, that infuriated me. I, I just went, you can't treat people like that. And so I simply said, we will say no. We will knock this. We will say we can't. We are not going to do this anymore. And this is not how you can be treated. And um, what ended up happening actually was that it really gave the the publicist a great strength. I, I she just knew that I had her back one hundred percent, and that if we didn't have this work anymore, it was okay. Mm. And that was that strengthened. I think the way we worked together. Um, I know she appreciated it, and. What it just gave her strength, and, and in fact, she was able to actually talk to the talent concerned and raise the issue. And you know what happened? It strengthened their relationship in the end because this I don't think many people stood up to be fair. And you know, sometimes you're dealing with talent, and you think, Oh, you know, it's not always just yes, it's not always, Oh, yes, we'll do whatever you think. In fact, you know, there has to be a mutual respect. Yeah, I think staffing is such a 
challenging aspect of running a business um, and, you know, showing commitment to your staff over a paycheck from a client, um, I think can do wonders for a business. You know, you're investing in your staff who will hopefully be by your side through many more clients beyond this one. Yeah, and I think also, you know, we don't always love everything that's on our plate. You know, and we do also need to realise that sometimes, you know, things don't go as you expect and you've got to be a bit, bit resilient or aspects of the job you don't like as much as other aspects. There's always going to be light and, you know, and darkness in some of some of the work that we do. You know, the light and shade is pretty important. Um, but I do think that, you know, setting up a model whereby, you know, you've got the best possible people working on the best possible projects um, is just a good place to start, you know. And, and I... X-Factor would be absolutely nowhere without its fantastic team over the years. I mean, it's, it's, everything is about the people you have working with you and, and their ability and their skill and the fact that they feel comfortable and confident in doing the best job that they can do. Um, and they need to feel like they can grow and learn as well. So I think having a bit of a sense of humour along the way helps or being able to laugh at a situation and think it's okay. And to have a bit of perspective, you know, and it's, you know, and not solving a cure for cancer. As much as our, our work we might like to think is really, really important, definitely perspective is, in, is vital. You know, we, um, and I would always say, you know, leave early and go to, the, go to the gym, get exercise, feel great. I mean, because I was always that kind of person who, crazily enough I used to roll a blade to work because that's <laughs> I felt that was better than driving um I have been known and uh you know teams my people in my team would just go my god she's nuts go, yep but wow what a way to get to work um and I did love that and it saved on the parking <laughs> so what were the most challenging elements of running a PR business for you I think that I've, I mean, I started my agency, gosh, it's almost 20 years ago now, which is, which is incredible. But I started, you know, with just myself. Um, and I, at that stage, it was about two years before I had my first child. And, um, you know, so yeah, my daughter's now 18 and uh, my son's 14. So I ran X Factor through, you know, having young children. And I would say that, you know, I was very aware that, you know, I had, um, an environment that wasn't going to suit people who wanted to be partying on a Friday night and having going out and having drinks together. And because quite frankly, I, I had to get home to get sorted and, you know, you've got young children. So that was the stage of the life, you know, that was the stage of my life. Um, and I loved being very, very busy, um, but I did have a good support network behind me. I had a good nonna who helped me look after the kids when I was working. Um, so I'd say that one of the hardest things is trying to find a balance that works for you. And when you do find a balance, um, it changes. So being and understanding that it's going to change all the way through. Um, and I guess being as nimble as you can and definitely, definitely getting as much help as you possibly can, putting your hand up, getting the nanny, getting the support, whatever you can afford. Um, I'm that kind of person who, you know, if I could, I would rather work and, you know, and spend all of my money enabling me to work than not work. That's just me. I, I like to be stimulated and to do interesting and exciting projects. So so for me, the mix is trying to, you know, um, you know, work, have family, you know, do all the things you need to. Um, I don't want to be at home doing more housework. I'm just not interested in that. You know, like that's, 
it's just not me. It's for other people. They love being at home and they love to create a beautiful home to be in. You know, I'm happy to do a quick 10 minute whip around the house and feel like it's tidy. Mm. Um, but I'm not going to spend much more time than that. Did you, did your business model change at all over the last uh, two decades in terms of, um, the framework of how you created campaigns or how you build people or, um, how you managed to find profit in your business. What kind of changed over the last two decades that you go, well, that used to work for me for whatever reason and now it doesn't? Yeah, how long do we have? That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a big question. You know, I to be honest, I think that fundamentally, I know this sounds very simple, simplistic, but fundamentally um, I'm still doing to a degree the same sort of job that I did when I started. I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, when I started as a publicist, my job was to shine a light on, you know, and create awareness for someone doing something, right? You know, it was a television show, you know, tune in and create brand awareness for this person. So that storytelling around that. I'm still doing that today. Um, so fundamentally, I feel like, you know, I'm still doing something very similar. I've definitely honed my skills um, and I know the sorts of things I like to work on. I'm a lot clearer. And obviously my relationships have grown along with just simply my experience and, and they become very, very important. But what's changed dramatically, of course, is just simply the landscape. I, I do feel that it's harder now. I feel that, you know, when you're working in a very specialised area, say if you're looking at television publicity, you know, our sort of scope was very much TV guides. And when I was at the ABC, it was ABC Radio and it was the television guides and occasionally the news sections of the papers if you really had something a bit newsy and certainly long lead magazines. TV Week, okay. Um, you know, but that was kind of the scope and that was busy enough. You know, but remember too that, you, you know, I was responsible for national publicity then. I was coordinating national, not just sort of state-based publicity. So it was really broad in terms of, you know, the, the territory you were covering. But, you know, I feel now it is a lot more complex. You know, we are, try, we are essentially sort of, um, sort of trying to control narrative, but the control is no longer in our hands. You know, you know, our clients have got control over their own narratives. You know, they're able to post themselves on social media. They're able to have a voice. They're able to say, no, that wasn't what I meant when something happens that doesn't go their way. You know, crisis management is quite different. And for that reason, I think it's just so much more complex. Um, it's also a lot more exciting. And I feel that there's so much to learn all the time. So strangely, Brooke, you know, I feel like I'm still, it sounds crazy, I'm still new in the game. I feel like as much as I've been doing this for 20 years, I still feel like there's so much out there that I need to explore and do differently and bring into my campaigns um, you know, I'm learning things from my kids. Um, you know, they raise their eyebrows or roll their eyes rather when, you know, when there's certain, certain tone is used, when adults use a tone that they go, that is so naff. Um, and, you know, they've got a completely different sort of sense of, on social media. Um, I think we're going to be learning a lot more from them, you know, in the next 10 years. But, you know, so I think that the, the landscape has just given us so, so many more opportunities. Um, I think you've got to be a bit sharper. I think you've got to be on your toes. Uh, it, but it's exciting for all of those reasons. And, and that's why I think that for people listening, I would just say that a career in PR is really exciting. I mean, I would never have imagined that when I started, you know, my work at the ABC that I'd be 
still doing what I'm doing, but still interested and still jazzed. I'm still excited by so many aspects of the sort of stuff that I do. And to answer your question about how it sort of changed in terms of how I've maybe evolved the business, I'm now really pretty much working uh, back to more like a production model whereby I build teams for the sorts of projects I need to build. So it's very much back into my control of just doing really the exciting things that I want to be doing. And if it's not exciting, I don't want to do it. You know, I've got the, I'm fortunate in the sense that I can pick and choose a little bit. And sometimes I just go, wow, I'm going to do that because that's so different and I want to learn. Um, So I feel that it's a brilliant career. I honestly feel like in that sort of communication space, there's so much complexity and you've got a lot of different areas that you can also go into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One thing I wanted to touch on is that um, over the last couple of weeks, the shoe's almost on the other foot now. And instead of being the person behind the spokesperson, you are now becoming the spokesperson. So you instigated a, a little initiative a couple of weeks ago Um, And you can probably uh, articulate this better, but from my understanding, it's about um, trying to get local Australian artists featured on this on hold music that all of us across the world are so sick of hearing this kind of generic um, doctor's surgery style (laughs) instrumental music that gets looped on. Um, Tell us about how this has come about and and your role in it and what it's like now being the subject of interviews rather than the one coordinating the interviews. The, the basic story is that I had to unravel some travel plans like so many of us and I was on Qantas on hold for seven hours and 19 minutes and I didn't have a choice because customer service, I had to talk to a person because I couldn't cancel a particular booking online. I did everything else online but this one pesky, um, you know, booking, I had, they said, look, call customer service, you know, that's the only thing you can do. So I had to hold on. And, I, it, it, you know, then it decided it was almost like a joke. I kept thinking, gosh, surely they're going to come to me any minute now. Because you know how they always have the, you know, we'll be with you shortly, stay on the line. So I kept thinking that they were going to come to me shortly. <laughs> and they didn't. But, um, look, I didn't have a problem with being on hold for seven hours and 19 minutes. Like, that's the irony here. Like, we are now in this new age of patience. And, and we're all having to wait a lot all the time. But and so I didn't have a problem with being on hold. You know, I went for a really long walk and did lots of different things. But it was the same 15-second snippet of on-hold instrumental that they were repeating that just honestly just drove me crazy. And I thought, you know, why are we not listening to something more interesting? And what about if we were listening to sort of emerging Australian artists or some, some great classics? You, anything would be better, quite frankly. But... I love listening to new music and I love um, supporting the music industry. What can we be doing there? So I posed the question, you know, just to a few people and they were just, that sounds like a great idea. And then they'd all have their own stories of being on hold, you know, four hours, five hours, eight hours, you name it. And, um, And everyone said it was a great idea. And I thought, but surely this exists. Surely this can't be a new idea. But I did actually speak to a couple of, um, you know, music writers who said, look, it doesn't exist because licensing can be complicated and people think it's more complicated than it actually is. Um, but there are ways and means of doing it. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, you know, I was encouraged um, to start up a change.org. And, of course, I have never done a petition in my life for anything. <laughs> I think the most I've ever done is get sort of the neighbours to sign something, you know, for, for school and, you know, or maybe sell raffle tickets. But I would never normally do a petition. But I felt that 
this kind of made sense and it was something that I just felt everyone would be able to relate to. And very quickly we started to get a lot of responses um, and um, it ended up being picked up by um, some local radio who then wanted to talk to someone who, and that person had to be me because it was my idea. And you know what, Brooke, I have, like yourself, I have organized thousands of interviews in my life for other people. And I've never, like, I'm not the one who does radio interviews. So I actually took this as an opportunity to do something that I have never really done. And I just thought, look, I think it's a great experience um, to, to do interviews. Um, I can only help inform me, you know, if I'm working with clients so that I can feel like I've had an experience with that. And uh, so, so far I've done some, I've done a whole heap of um, interviews across Australia on radio and, and on the weekend, SBS TV ran an interview as well. Um, and, you know, again, I'd never done a TV interview. So you kind of do things for the first time and you think, what the hell, I'll just do it. And, um, you know, it's uh, the response just continues to grow. So I think we're, you know, I'm, I'm pushing, you know, I want to get 10,000 signatures. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's interesting with this campaign is that um, I'm really wanting big business to play and pay Australian music on, on you know, on our core waiting systems. That's what it's all about. And, you know, there has to be an easier way. And, there, and, and so I've brought on board, I've got the support of um, APRA AMCOS, who are the licensing body. And I've now also reached out to Service New South Wales, who have got a call with me this week, who said, it's a great initiative. Let's talk. And I've gone, oh my God, that's exciting. <laughs> that's like... Impact 101, and if I can actually have a positive outcome from that, that I find that exciting. So I think that's what I'm after. I don't really, you know, you realise that the interview is one thing, it's the outcome that makes the difference. And if we can get someone to do something, then that's awesome. So let's see where it goes. But, you know, ultimately it's, um, I think, you know, the feedback is it's a good idea. Let's make something work. Let's help our music industry. Let's get more royalties in the pockets of our artists. And not only that, you know, if they're having their music heard more widely, that has to lift their spirits. Because, you know, at the moment, this is an industry that is decimated and it's an estimated like 84 million in lost gigs since the 1st of July. Like, you know, it's an extraordinary amount of money. People are you know, really, really struggling. So I think that we can kind of bandy together to help. If people want to sign the petition, where do they head? Is it change.org and do they have to type in anything? It is. In particular? Yeah, change.org forward slash hold Aussie music. Now to finish up, I've just got quick questions. So the first one is, what do you think is the most important attribute or handful of attributes if you can't define one that sets apart a uh, great publicist from a good one? Resilience, being proactive, and being the last person standing. Nice. And to finish up, what is the key to leading a balanced life in this notoriously chaotic industry? I reckon right now, walk, walk a lot. I just keep walking. <laughs> I, you know, walk, listen to a podcast, walk, listen to some good music, yeah. Aussie music, of course. I would, um, you know, if you need to walk, make that phone call, um, you know, that's good for your heart. It's good for getting out and getting a bit of vitamin D. Um, if you need to connect and use that time to connect, do it, you know, ring someone you haven't spoken to for a while. Um, that's good for your soul. Uh, so I'd say walk and walk some more. Great. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. It's been brilliant to have some insight into your PR pathway and into the ebbs and flows of your career. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was awesome to chat. No worries at all. And if you are listening to the podcast on Apple or iTunes, I would love it if you could take 30 seconds to rate and review. Thanks for listening to the PR pod. For more expert tips on working in PR, head to www.theprpod.com.